0: Bud Light presents Real American Heroes.
1: Real American Heroes.
0: Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Foam Finger Maker. Mr. Giant Foam Finger Maker. Without you, our teams would be in sixth or seventh place and feel as if they were in sixth or seventh place. Can you feel it? carefully you craft uncanny representations of actual human hands so that we may wave them annoyingly in the faces of our rivals. They're enormous, yes, yet one size fits all. Brilliant. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, Mr. Foam Finger Maker, and know we speak for sports fans everywhere when we say, no. No. You're number
1: one. But like
0: here, Anheuser Bush, St. Louis. Um, but uh, so being Princeton, and then um, Einstein was at Princeton in the advanced um, physics and mathematics uh, that he ran. And Moberg wanted to visit, wanted to meet Einstein. And so it was arranged. So Moberg went to Einstein's home in Princeton, New Jersey. And he, and he told me. He said uh, that um, uh, we, had, we had tea in the European style and, gla- and uh, glasses, tea with glasses, and uh, like little mugs. And, uh, and, he, and then he said the professor played the violin for me. And then at some point Einstein said to Mo, if you teach me baseball, I will teach you the theory of relativity. And Mo said... Einstein thought about that for a moment and he said we better forget about that because you would learn the theory of relativity faster than I would learn baseball. (laughs)
1: Baseball
2: Universe, what is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pawleys Island, South Kagalecki. Kind of like half man, half podcast machine. Back into Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's bonus pod digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. What's good? What's cracking? What's juicy, you seamhead freaks? I got your hook up, Holler if you hear me. It's your boy, the Pod Viper of Pods. I'm like a puppy who gets, you know, separation anxiety when they're without master. And I'm to the point where I go crazy when I'm not talking scenes with this audience. I I work, I come home, I stare at the wall like a maniac with the baseball game in the background. And I literally wait to attack the microphone again. I I need a fucking hobby, I think. I I don't know if this is healthy. (laughs) The only thing I can relate this to is... It's when I was playing ball and I was hardcore into working out. Hello everybody, Jake the Snake Robinson. Back to deliver yet another eargasm to you freaks. with a special backwards K bonus pod show. I figure what the hell. I ain't got nothing better to do than feed my fucking narcissism and ego. And I've said it before. Some, some dudes like to fly planes. Some guys like to surf, fish, play golf. Me... There's nothing I love more than talking seams with you freaks. Uh, This is my happy zone. This is my bubble. Nothing can touch me in this universe that we built together. I'm not sure why, really. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of angst before I perform. I, I, I have literally nightmares of falling apart at the seams on a mic. My biggest fear in life is to fail this audience. Not saying that all these shows are Grand Slams, but look. I know I'm a 400 hitter in my universe at what I do. Even if the whole world hasn't recognized it yet, I know this. But this audience right now is my core in every show. Before I take off, I ask myself, why the fuck am I doing this? My my adrenaline starts racing through me. My endorphins, they surge throughout my body. I've never flown a plane, jumped out of one, or did any kind of skydiving, but I imagine this is the feeling people Get when they do that that natural hot now i love to perform you guys seem to like to listen and it's a perfect marriage between us where our love for baseball is our bond now the one other thing i'm really passionate about outside of baseball as a child of the cold wars is a great spy story and look I feel like I really missed my calling. If I could do it all over again, I would devote my life to espionage for this country. The whole clandestine uh, nature of the job it appeals to a part of me. And I just know I would have been the Castro regime's worst fucking nightmare. I-, I would have been stealing everything that isn't nailed to the floor. Man, eventually I would have figured out how to steal that as well. Some of you probably think, you know, I listen to a lot of baseball puns, but the truth is, I don't listen to any of them, except mine. Number one, I don't want this show to ever mimic anyone else's. What you hear out of me is 100% original thought and baseball experience. I don't even watch a lot of MLB Network, even though I do love it. You know, I need baseball news, I go to the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network on Facebook. I prefer to do the work myself rather than be spoon-fed anyone else's analysis. And when I listen to pods, it's usually, you know, general knowledge shows like Stuff You Should Know. If you've never heard of that show, I highly recommend it. It's a great fucking show. I had to pray to admit it. Stuff You Should Know. And I also love to listen to Cold War spy pods. And so I've been listening to a few. And again, everything goes back to baseball for me. I I began thinking about mysterious Mo Berg and his amazing life. And if you do not know the Mo Berg story, well, come on into the dojo. Open your kimono and sit back and listen to this one. I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew and Watermelon Shine, you seam heads. Let's get right after it. The catcher is throwing down, so I'm going to clear this platform. Say goodbye to your loved ones, folks. I'm ready to load up our BKP time travel choo-choo. And I'm calling all aboard. As I set our time and destination for March 2nd, 1902. Where a true American patriot will be born. And grow into what the eccentric Casey Stengel will call the strongest, the strangest man to ever play baseball. Which, well, you know, if that, if, that, if, if that ain't the pot calling the kettle, right? I mean, if Casey Stengel considers you a weirdo, you must be literally off the fucking wall. I'm just saying. It was once said that Mysterious Mo was never destined to be a slayer of dragons, rather a maverick who went beyond the borders of an ordinary life. And there is probably no better way to explain this enigmatic ballplayer. John Kieran, a columnist for the New York Times. He called Moe the most scholarly professional athlete he ever met. Mo was socially awkward around people, especially those who didn't have much going on upstairs. It was as if he was trying to come down to their level, but the depths of the simplicity were too deep to fathom. There was a nervous vitality ingrained in his DNA, and at times he seemed like an outcast. As if he was out of sync and had zero empathy for the people and the environment surrounding him. He lived in a world that was only big enough for himself. And he was passionately interested in knowledge for its own sake. He was, however, a free spirit who was quick to share his knowledge to anyone who cared to sit and listen. And when he wasn't holding court discussing politics, history, and science... With some poor sap trying to keep up with his lectures, he was watching. He was an observer of his fellow homo sapiens. He studied mannerisms and accents, decision making, and his face was almost always barren as as he had the uncanny ability to never sell his emotions or the secrets he held close to his vest. Mystery Moe Berg was a linguist who could speak 12 languages. But as he was always reminded, he couldn't hit any of them. Nah, 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 nah. He was a born in a cold water Jewish tenement on East 121st Street in Manhattan, New York City, to Russian Jewish immigrants Bernard Berg and Rose Tasker, who arrived in New York, arrived in New York City from the Ukraine in 1894. Well, actually, Bernard arrived two years before Rose as he worked hard, saved up the money before he sent for her. He also had set aside enough cash to buy his own laundry hut on the Lower East Side. His father had higher ambitions though as he attended night school at the Columbia College of Pharmacy. And by the time Morris was born, joining siblings, siblings Apple and Samuel, Bernard was a licensed pharmacist. And though the family was Jewish, Bernard didn't leave because of religious persecution. In fact, it's more like he left to get away from all that religion surrounding him in the Ukraine. He and Rose had little affinity for religion. Bernard believed in science, mathematics, and education over religion. And he installed this in his children as well. While Mo despised the anti-Semitic Nazi, it wasn't necessarily because they planned to eliminate the Jewish religion, more like it was he found their behavior in general to be abhorrent. He would often refer to himself as Jewish and didn't use his religion as an identifier for who and what he was. By the time he's nine months old, his father bought a pharmacy in the Roseville section of Newark, New Jersey. As a youngster, he was exposed to baseball and began playing in. Christian Church League for the Rosedale, I'm sorry, Roseville Methodist Episcopal Church. And he had no real connection to his Jewish heritage and his desire to fit in with these Episcopalians. Uh, He changed his name to Runt Wolf. The only thing his father despised more than organized religion was baseball. He couldn't stand to hear about his son's exploits on the diamond. He felt baseball was nothing more than a privileged child's game with no future, a distraction. His mother rose, however. She rarely missed a game by her youngest son. But his father never once saw him play in his whole life. Bernard worked for 30 long years so that his children would get the education they needed in this brave new country, where the sky is the limit. Samuel became a doctor and Ethel a school teacher. Bernard had expectations of Mel pursuing a law degree, so that's what he did. Mo attended Beringer High School when he was a standout prep third baseman with a cannon for an arm. He graduated high school at the age of 16, and he's accepted to attend New York University. A year later, he would transfer to Princeton. For the most part, he enjoyed attending Princeton in terms of his quest for a higher learning, but he did receive anti-Semitic blowback there when he wanted to join some of the university's more elite social clubs. And they, they didn't necessarily deny it, but they said, yeah, you can join as long as you don't bring any of your Jewish friends with you. And most of these students attending the prestigious college were Protestants from wealthy families. Because of this, uh, he declined the invitation to join the club, and he became a loner. And this probably contributed to many mysterious ways... All this personality in years to come. He becomes a master linguist. He studies classical and romance languages. Greek, French, Spanish, German, Italian, Russian, Arabic, Parsi. He even studies Latin and Sanskrit. It was on the ball field for the Princeton Nine where Mo Byrne became noticed and somewhat accepted. As he was the best player of the team for three years. During his senior year, he is the captain and star shortstop of a Princeton team that is still considered the best in school history. Moe graduated with honors, magnum cum laude, in 1923, and he was 24th in a class of 211 students. Upon graduation, Berg signed with the Brooklyn Robins of the National League. He also entered Columbia Law School, eventually receiving his law degree in 1930. At this point, Berg finds himself at his first crossroads in life. He knows his father's ambitions. He knows that, you know, he wants his son to become a lawyer, coupled with the fact that Bernard despises fucking baseball. But Berg, he loves baseball. It's where he's accepted, appealed to the true nature of his being, and he felt accepted on the diamond. Princeton University offers him a gig to teach romance language, but he turns them down and he decides to play baseball. After all, he figures, I can always practice law after baseball. He starts his career at shortstop for the Robins, and he bats 186 his rookie year of 1923. In 1924, he plays for Toledo and Minneapolis in the American Association, playing third and short still, and he finishes with a 265 average between the two clubs. In 1925, he was with Reading in the International League as a shortstop. He bats 311, which propels him back into the big league in 1926. He plays 41 games for the White Sox that year, and he bats 221 for the South Siders. In 1927, the White Sox encounter a slew of injuries at the catcher position. Manager Ray Schalk was also the reserve backstop, and he was out with a broken thumb. Starter Buck Krause was also on the injury list, as was Harry McCurdy, who shredded his hand in a game versus Boston. And manager Shawk, he's at a loss. He's looking at his roster that's sitting in the clubhouse, and he says, can any of you catch? And Berg, who's looking for ways to play more, he raises his hand, and he says, I used to think I could. And Schmalk si- smiles and he says, Well, who told you you couldn't? And Berg says, My high school coach, Skip. And the clubhouse breaks out in laughter. And Schmalk informs Berg he would be obliged if Mo went out there today and proved his high school coach wrong. So Berg does go out there. And he does just that. He, he proves his high school coach wrong by embracing the position like a fish in water. The way an eagle never has fear of heights. Mo Berg is a natural at that position. After the game, the intense shock kisses Berg on the cheek and tells him he now has a new position in the game. And with that, the smartest man in baseball is married to the tools of ignorance. He was an excellent defensive backstop. The position appealed to his intelligence and his ability to read people and dissect their strengths and weaknesses. He called a great game, and he threw out 43% of would-be base stealers. That's Johnny Bench territory, folks. And we're talking against some of the best MLB stolen base dudes ever, like Cobb, Hottest, Speaker. His hitting had left a lot to be desired as he finished his career with a 2.43 average and six home runs in the midst of baseball's first live ball era. But his baseball acumen in calling games and his knowledge of the opponent made him a commodity in the era, and he was always in demand around the league. Moe would go on to play for the Tribe, Senators, and the Red Sox after his stints in Brooklyn and Chicago. Until his retirement in 1939. In all, he spent 15 seasons in the majors on the strength of his defensive skills and overall knowledge of baseball strategy. At least that is how the story has been passed down. There, there aren't questions about how a light hitter in an era of some of the game's biggest bats ever is able to survive 15 years. And Mo was like a ninja, he was around. And then he would mysteriously disappear, not to be seen until the next ball game. When he played in Washington for the Senators, teammates would tell you that they never saw Berg after home games. Players from his other teams noted that when they went to D.C., Berg would play the game and then disappear into the district. One time, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is at the Senators game. And he yells out to Berg, and he waves him over to the booth to talk to him. His teammates are in utter shock, as it is apparent that these two know each other intimately. Not just as leader of the free world, who's a fan of him. More like, you know, the most powerful man in the world is a friend of the backup catcher. A good friend. When he returns to the dugout, Berg sits stone-faced, staring at the field. And his teammates, they couldn't take it anymore after a couple minutes of silence. And he asked Berg, you know, what's the deal, dude? How how do you know President Roosevelt? And Berg turns to the team, puts his pointer finger to his mouth and says, shh, a polite way of saying none of your fucking business. And this would be Berg's calling card whenever people would ask him intimate details about his personal life. And this mannerism was Exhibited by him. Till his sad death. We know that as far back as 1934. Berg had a relationship. With the United States. In fact we know it goes back to 1928. But in 1934. He is born, uh, He's part of a barnstorming team. Of American all-star ballplayers in Japan. Who which. You know, lends to a whole host of other questions when it comes to mysterious Mo. Like why is a 240 backup catcher on a team of high-profile luminaries like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Charlie Garringer, Lefty Gomez? In 1934, there are growing hostilities between the Empire of Japan and the United States that are eventually going to lead to the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor eight years later and ultimately bring the United States into the war. At the beginning of this 12 city competition between the two countries, Mo addresses the Japanese congregation of welcoming ambassadors with a speech in Japanese as teammates Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig stood by absolutely dumbfounded. Now, if you remember, the languages he learned at Princeton, the Japanese was not one of them. When he was invited a month before the trip, he took a deep dive to learn the Japanese language. He learned it in less than a month, folks. I've been taking Japanese for a year and a half. I barely know the necessities. This guy learned it in a month. And with this group of future Hall of Famers around him, it was backup catcher Moe Berg who was charming the Japanese press and delegates. Moe would later say he told the delegates and press that my teammates do not speak your language. They probably never heard an American speak it in their life. Do me a favor. When I stop talking, I want you guys to laugh like I told a great joke. Babe and Lou were looking at Berg like, what the fuck is going on? Berg goes on. Thank you for having us here. And I hope this can bring our great countries together. I'm finished. Now please laugh. And on the cue. The Japanese delegates. The delegates. They they broke out in a huge roar of laughter. Which made the iconic Ruth and Gehrig. Spin around. And look at the crowd in amazement. Again. Why is Mo? There in the first place. And he wasn't even in the dugout during a lot of the games. Instead, he was dressed in a long kimono, walking the streets of Japan, and engaging the people to get a grasp on the pre-war Japanese people. On one occasion, he buys a bouquet of flowers, and he goes to St. Luke's Hospital under the guise of him wanting to visit a U.S. ambassador, Joseph Gregg's daughter, who had recently given birth to a daughter, uh, who had recently given birth to her own daughter, and he was going to go there under the guise of delivering her flowers. But mystery Moi doesn't visit the ambassador's daughter. Instead, he goes to the roof of the hospital, which is the tallest building in the city, and begins filming the landscape and infrastructure of Tokyo. When he gets home, he hands the film over to the United States government. In 1942, General Jimmy Doolittle would use the grainy 10-year-old footage in some way to pull off the famous Doolittle Raid of Tokyo in April of 1942. In August of 1938, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to what we now know as the CIA, it recruited the former ball player, And it was recruited by General Wild Bill William Donovan the former commander of the fighting 69th Regiment, World War I. As Berg heads to South America to secure cooperation between them and the U.S. in the war against the villainous axis of powers of Japan, Italy, and Nazi Germany. On another mission, Berg was to parachute along Yugoslavia to acquire data about the relative strengths of the Chetnik Loyal, Loyals to King Peter, who were led by uh, Draza Mihailovic. I hope I said that right. I know I probably butchered that. And the communist partisans under the stewardship of Joseph Bros and their fight against the Nazis. After the sit down, it was Berg's assessment that the partisans uh, under Bros were superior and had the backs of the Yugoslavians. Thus, the greater aid went to Bros. So, look i think I'm going to take a break right here from telling this amazing story. I need to chart out my brain how to finish this story. Grab a cigarette take a shot of liquor. Don't go anywhere, folks. I'll r b before you can say Jared Satamakia. I know, I'm a machine like Paul's. But even a machine needs to power down and reboot every once in a while. Don't go anywhere, freaks. I'll be back to give you Mo's third act of this story.
1: Big Tech, Gabe Keene, executive producer of Backwards K-Pot. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish water. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap, perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to damn Cajun Old Bay spice. Well we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods, perfect for cleaning spicy smelly hands after a Texas sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our craft hand cleaner, or the fishin' hand cleaner, an ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back to 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know effect. Hey mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a Buffalo Wing Hand Cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning.
0: CrawfishHandCleaner.com And the thing that, that hooked our f- friendship, one day, and he came and uh, he was sitting and he was doing the Times of London crossword puzzle, the, supp- uh, the literary supplement. And so I sat down next to him, and we talked a little bit, but he was doing the crossword puzzle, and almost to himself he said, uh, six letters, the Greek name for the Roman god Mercury, About 10 or 12 years earlier, in college in Miami, Ohio, I had taken a course in biblical and mythological backgrounds and literature. We had to memorize some of those names. So I said to him, Hermes. H E R N E S. Hermes, yes. From that point forward, Mo and I were good friends.
2: Okay, so, before we took the break, I was breaking down the life of mysterious Mo Berg, a highly intelligent but a mediocre baseball player at the major league level. He defies his father by playing baseball. His father, Bernard, left the Ukraine in the 1890s to seek out the American dream of owning his own pharmacy and ensuring his children have the highest education possible. alone a loner. He loves to observe people and converse with those few ballplayers who are in search of a better understanding of the world around them. He would hold court in the clubhouse and talk about the topical issues of the day. And his first link, well, his first known link to espionage, it came in 1934 when Moe dressed in traditional Japanese garb and as a highly advanced linguist, Spoke to the everyday Japanese citizen to gauge the possibility of war with the country. He also goes to the top of Tokyo's largest building, St. Luke's Hospital. And he grabs the camera he has hidden under the kimono to take pictures of the Tokyo landscape. The military infrastructure and the munitions plants. As well as the docking of naval ships anchored in Tokyo Harbor. Ten years later... The U.S. government would use this film in some fashion to carry out the Doolittle air raid on Tokyo. And in August 1938, he is recruited, hired officially in 1942 by the OSS, which would later become the CIA to become a real life clandestine uh, spy for the country. And they send him out in missions around the world to protect American interests. And he excels at it. And that is pretty much where I broke out. So let's continue on with this most amazing story. In 1938, with the world on the precipice of the inevitable war, the United States has figured out how to split the atom. And they are now embroiled in the Manhattan Project and feverishly working hard on the atom bomb. That would eventually put an end to the senseless war. The U.S. receives intel that says the Germans are also in pursuit of building the bomb, with their top nuclear fission fission scientist, Werner Heisenberg, leading the charge. The last thing the fucking world needs is that fucking shit-stained Hitler with a nuclear bomb at his disposal. So, the U.S. decides to send an OSS agent to kill Heisenberg, if the intelligence proves to be true. And the agent Tad for that mission is former Major League Catcher Mo Berg. And the mission is clear. Armed with a handgun and a cyanide capsule, Berg is to ascertain whether the intelligence is credible, and if it is, he is to shoot the German scientist in the fucking head where he stands. Under no circumstances is Berg to be caught and interrogated for his secrets by the Nazis. If, in the event, that the heat comes down on Berg, he is to take his own life with the cyanide capsule. And, folks, think about it. If he's caught, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person, you know, and multiply it by a thousand. If he's caught in the act of espionage, the Jewish-American ballplayer can certainly count on aggressive and painful, torturous interrogation and a train ride to Dachau uh, concentration camp. He chased the scientist down at a lecture in Zurich, Switzerland. He enters the lecture under the cover as a German-speaking intellectual interested in nuclear fission. As soon as he enters, Heisenberg is aware of his presence. He's seen this guy before, randomly around town and, you know, in the cafes and shoe shoeshine stands. Who is this guy? And Heisenberg can't help feeling that this guy doesn't belong. Regardless, he pushes through with the lecture. And in a room of over 30 people, Berg is starting to feel exposed a little bit. It seems as though, you know, people keep staring at him like they know what he's there to do. But he pushes all that aside. He has his hands on the pistol inside his jacket pocket. And he listens intently to the words of Professor Heisenberg. He is waiting for any indication that the Nazis are building a bomb. If he comes out of his mouth wrong during this lecture, Berg is prepared to kill the scientists in the middle of the college classroom where he stands. And such a brazen act in public is sure to get him locked up. So he's also prepared to cyanide out for his country. Fortunately for Heisenberg and the 40 or so in attendance, who would have witnessed the violent attack, Berg was not convinced by anything he said at that lecture that would warrant his death. But he's still unsure, and he doesn't trust any Nazi. After the lecture, Mo gets in touch with an SS asset contact who has a relationship with Heisenberg, and he talks the contact into getting Berg invited to a dinner Heisenberg was attending that evening with other high-class intellectuals of Europe. The contact, not knowing the depths of Moe's mission, knows that his friend Heisenberg is probably in danger. And the two begin to talk. And the contact intimates that Heisenberg is but a small fish in a big pond. To paraphrase it, he basically called a Heisenberg an Einstein wannabe. The Jewish Albert Einstein had fled to America already and by now was helping the U.S. create the atomic bomb. He also told Moe that this wannabe got no chance of making the bomb. He's not even using soft water, a necessary component for the bomb. The Nazis were using hard water and they had no idea how to take the next step for this weapon. Berg, still not convinced, gets the contact to get him invited to the dinner function. As he enters the private dinner, he and Heisenberg immediately make eye contact. And again, the scientist has an uneasy feeling building inside of him. Is he Gestapo keeping an eye on him? Which, of course, they were. But Berg is not Gestapo. He's an American operative on a mission. And one way or another, this is going to end tonight before the scientist escapes to Berlin without answering for his presumed actions. So he approaches Heisenberg, and he begins speaking in fluent German with him. The smart professor says he has a unique German accent, to which Berg responds that he never realized he ever had an accent. Berg says his name is Aziz, and Heisenberg says that name doesn't match your face for some reason. Now, in front of the two men is a chessboard, where it looks like a game is already in progress, as there are pieces spread out on the board, and some aren't even on it. As the two suspicious men of one another are engaged in this conversation, they're both staring at the board. Berg begins to ask questions about nuclear fission and where the world is headed because of it. And in a game of cat and mouse, Hasenberg sidesteps the question and angrily tells Berg to remember the chessboard. And then he swipes the board clean of all the remaining pieces. He tells Berg, I don't know what game you're playing, sir. But you are clearly not in my league. As he walks away angrily to sit at the dinner table, Mysterious Mo sits down and looks at the empty chessboard to contemplate his next move in this chess match of espionage and assassination. At the dinner table, conversation about the impending war and the politics of Germany take place. Some women at the table begin berating the German scientists about his affiliation with that shit stained Hitler and his racist cronies. Some at the table, seeing Heisenberg become uncomfortable, try in vain to quiet the ladies from disrespecting the guest of honor. But it doesn't work, as the table has become a buzz with the politics of the day. Everyone has feelings, everyone has a take, and the atmosphere has become contentious. And above the loud chatter, the quiet and composed Berg is just observing. Like he was always doing since he was a kid. Heisenberg looks very uncomfortable with the verbal abuse he's undergoing by the ladies. Above the chatter, the former catcher yells, Rook to Bishop Four at the professor, who is just to the right of him at the table. Heisenberg looks quizzically at Berg, This guy has the ability to play without looking at the fucking board. Who the fuck is this guy? He responds back, to upon 8. The battle of which is interrupted by the same ladies, and they become even more aggressive in their line of questioning about the professor's relationship with the Nazi party. Heisenberg tells the uh, the ladies they don't know what they're talking about, and he excuses himself from his own dinner party and walks out the door into the cold Zurich night. And Berg knows this is it. If he is intent to carry out his mission, well, then he's not about to let Heisenberg off the hook. He excuses himself as well and leaves the house. And he spots Heisenberg briskly walking down the street, and he begins to follow him. Within minutes, the professor realizes he's being tailed, and he begins to pick up the pace, and Mo is keeping up. He tries in vain to lose his tail, but to no avail. Berg catches up with him and tells him, we haven't finished our game yet, sir. Heisenberg says, Maybe I don't want to finish. Maybe I'll just run. And the athletic burn assures him that would be a mistake. And he asks him flat out, I need to know what your connection is to the Nazi party of Germany. Heisenberg says, I'm a German living in Nazi Germany. That does not mean I sympathize with them or their fucking actions. And what in the war? Are you building a nuclear bomb to win it? Heisenberg finally lets his guard down and says, The Nazis are a bunch of idiots, know nothings, with zero chance of winning this war. And if they do, it will not be because of my hand. I've never given them anything that would help them take over the world. At that very moment, a shot rang out in the Swiss city. Little did they know they were being watched in the shadows by the Gestapo. The Nazi agent was drawing his gun and preparing to shoot the men when an OSS agent beat him to the punch and shot him dead. With the two shook men staring at one another, both men were seconds away from being killed. Heisenberg turns to Mel and says, Seriously, who are you? Berg draws his pistol and he points it at his adversary. I'm a man who is making sure there's a balance between the evil and the just professor. And the professor is, of course, terrified at this moment. And with that, Mo Berg uncocks his gun and places it into his trench coat. And he tells the fri- frightened scientist, who now you know probably has soiled underpants, to live a long, peaceful life. But if I ever hear any different... I will be the last face you ever see. He turns around and he leaves the German there to watch him disappear into the Zurich mixture of night and snowy fog. After his face-to-face observation with Heisenberg under pressure, he correctly decided to trust the professor at his words as the Nazis were never close to figuring out the atomic bomb in hindsight. In fact, after the war, Heisenberg stated He knew the bomb would never work with hard water at all, and he also became an outspoken critic of nuclear bombs and their development. One of Berg's many eccentricities involved newspapers and books. He wouldn't let anyone touch his rags until he read them first. After he read them, he would throw the paper on the floor and proclaim it dead. And then others were free to read it at that point. If anyone touched his newspaper, he would throw a fit and angrily go out and buy another one. The U.S. government offered Moe the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but he refused to accept, and those reasons have never really come to light. Many feel it was in protest when the government began pulling away from Berg and even claimed the poor catcher owed him over $20,000 in expenses. And another theory is that Berg would never want or be able to explain to his family why he received this honor. His sister Ethel did take the metal when he died and so many questions still remain about mysterious mo as he was truly probably you know a biographer's worst nightmare because of his ability to keep his mouth shut loaders are often thought as dangerous people but mo was charming interesting very inquisitive he was a loader but people sought out his company because of his eccentricities and how can one possibly explain that dichotomy Berg's uncanny knack for blending in with the shadows and probably came from his days at Princeton University and from his personality trait that demanded utter secrecy where his private life was concerned. He enjoyed being the mysterious fellow to make himself the interesting figure that his psyche needed him to be. He would seemingly appear and just as suddenly disappear. It was in his nature. He never wanted deep relationships with others. Granted, he was friendly and intellectually engaging, but he always shrouded himself with an aura of mystique. He was the perfect man for the spy game because he revealed very little about himself until his last breath. He was, in essence, the spy who would come in from the cold, staying on the fringes of society, free to roam wherever he pleased. But from time to time, he still needed the warmth, of human society to bolster himself. Unfortunately, after the life of a clandestine agent was complete, Berg lived a life of poverty and destitution until his death. He lived for a while with his brother until he became too much of of an intrusion, and his brother had lawyers drop eviction papers, ending their relationship. He then moved in with his sister Ethel, who he stayed with until he died. After he lost his shirt in an investment at an office stationery company, Mo plunged himself into the world of books and higher learning, baseball, and study. He pretty much lived out his remaining days without a solid relationship with anyone, and that includes his family. There are so many questions about Mo that confound me after the research. How did he have a 13-year in baseball when, you know, he was no better than a mediocre player in an era where, you know, some of the biggest bats in the game's history played? There's a part of me that believes he was kept on Major League Baseball rosters at the behest of the government for his undercover abilities, quite honestly. In the end, it was ironically his quest for knowledge... Ted killed Mel. He had a habit of reading a book and stacking them up around his bed, almost like a, a circle around his bed with stacked books. Whenever he finished, he put it in a the stack. There's a big circle around his bed. On May 29th, 1972, Berg wakes up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. In the pitch dark, he climbs out of bed and trips over a stack of books, slamming his head into the floor, and he dies at the age of 70. As he lay on the hospital gurney. With his essence draining from his body. He turns to the nurse. In the room and asks. How did the Mets do today? And with those words. He breathed his last breath. And succumbed to his wounds. Ladies and gentlemen. Boys and girls. heads of all ages. This is the story. Of mysterious Mo Berg. The, emig- the enigma. The spy who played catcher. What an amazing story. And I'm so grateful to have this. American patriot. In our collection of ball players and stories. One thing that I forgot to mention. Is that. Today in the CIA offices. In Langley Virginia. Moe Berg's baseball cards. Are prominently displayed. In honor of his service to the country. And there's even mystery around his death. Uh, He was cremated. His sister, Ethel, she mailed his remains to Israel. And to this day, no one knows where they are. They just disappeared off the face of the earth. What an amazing story. Before I jet out, Let's take a look at the MLB stats of mysterious Moberg. Let's see here. Moberg, 15-year career with the Brooklyn Robins, White Sox, Senators Tribe and Red Sox, Career war of minus 4.6, 663 games, 1962 plate appearances. 150 runs scored. 441 hits, 71 doubles, 6 triples, 6 home runs, 206 RBI, 12 stolen bases, 5 times caught, 117 strikeouts against 78 walks, 542 total bases. And he finished with a 243, 278, 299 slash, a 577 OPS, and a 49 OBP+. So, he wasn't even half... Of what the average player was in, in, those, in that era. that yeah, he had a 13-year career. That's the secret agent man. So there you go, folks. Maybe if you like to compare dudes, you know, match him up with Bob Buecher. See what you discover. What an amazing story. Absolutely amazing. And that, my Seamhead audience, is the story. A mysterious Moberg. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling his tale. And I'll try to be better on Tuesday for the next show. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms wherever you listen to your shows. Or you can visit my website com to hear this or any of the other shows I have in my vault of expanding archives. I will never charge you for the baseball content here. I got way too much love and, you know, in my heart for you guys to ever do that horse shit. I'm just going to keep coming through. Every Tuesday, well, you know, this is a bonus show. (laughs) Right? But you never know what I'm going to show. I'm just going to keep coming through with that free baseball smoke. smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Dizzy Dean. And with that, the Moe Berg story is getting progressively smaller in my proverbial rear view mirror I now turn my attention to our baseball hydra and I chop the head of the beast only to see two more topics grow in its place Tuesday's show I'm going to opine about the great cathedrals uh, one of the great cathedrals in baseball history Forbes Field in Pittsburgh the throwback crib for the Pirates. But look, that's another story for another pod. Here at Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers and their stories. If you'd like to reach out, give me some love. Or tell me I suck. Bring it. I ain't hard to find. The show's Twitter handle is back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is Robbie one That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. We have a YouTube channel, an Instagram page. Both of those are at Backwards K-Pod. But usually, I'm just hanging out with the boys and girls at the greatest baseball page in the book. The private group Facebook page. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions and come on in if you'd like. Let's get crazy about this beautiful game. I want to thank the grassroot company that supports our grassroot baseball pod, Laparose Fishing Hand Cleaner. No most smelly hands. You can find that at CrawfishHandCleaner.com, a fantastic product invented by my former neighbor, Shipmate. That, that shit is amazing, bro. Omar Gabi, got to send you a shout-out. The guy who has been with BKP, besides myself, since show one. He is my social media ninja. And I love that dude. Thank you, L. My man Big Tech's Pod Squatch. I feel like his addition has put the show on a whole other level. Thank you, brother. If you're on a platform that allows you to rate and review, please do so as you see fit. I ain't stirred. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone else. And I say that in all humility. Not here to brag, but I believe in my product. Please share the show with other seamen in your orbit, orbit during the day. And I think that about covers it. I feel like I accomplished my goals on this one. I hope at some point I've inspired you to go down that Moberg rabbit hole and see what you come up with. There's a movie out called The Catcher Was a Spy. It's starring Paul Rudd as Moberg. Not bad. Check it out. Plenty of documentaries out there that probably leave more questions about the man than the answer. Just a fascinating player. And I'm so proud to have them in my collection. Or rather, you know, our collection, I should say. I'm nothing without you guys. Thanks for checking in. I'm truly living my dream because of this audience. I can never thank you enough. All I can do is come through with those baseball red tops. Two for five, two for five. Them dudes got garbage around the way. I got 99 props, but this party won. Parents. If you see your kids sitting on the couch with their nose in the phone like a board AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session here at the Complex, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you, Seaman Freaks, on Tuesday with Forbes Field. I love you guys. Peace.